0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to A Perpetual Feast here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, a producer here at the Circe Podcast Network, and before we kick it over to the show with Wes Callahan and Andrew Kern, I just need to say a quick word from our sponsor. Roman Roads Media is a publisher of Classical Christian Curriculum, designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops, and they're back this year with a giveaway for Cersei Podcast listeners. Each episode of Perpetual Feast, they're going to be giving away one of the 16 units from Wes Callahan's old western culture series a high school video course that guides you through the great books of western civ complete with workbooks discussion questions and readers west callahan draws from decades of teaching experience as he tells the story of western civilization integrating history literature theology politics philosophy and so much more here's how to enter this giveaway when this episode is posted on our facebook page on the Cersei facebook page leave a comment saying which unit of the old western culture you would choose if you win One of the comments will be drawn at random three days after the episode is posted. To browse the available titles in the Old Western Culture series, please visit www.romanroadsmedia.com. So thanks to our good friends over at Roman Roads Media for sponsoring this season of A Perpetual Feast, uh, especially with Wes Callahan being one of the co-stars of this show. We are really honored to continue partnering with Roman Roads and with Wes Callahan to make great content for you. We hope you really enjoy this season. Uh, So without further ado, I'll kick it over to Andrew Kern and Wes Callahan and their ongoing conversation of the works of Homer. Enjoy.
1: Then Priam addressed Achilles, entreating him in these words Remember your own father, godlike Achilles, whose years equal mine, on old age's deathly threshold. Those dwelling on his frontiers are harassing, with no one to ward off ruin from him. But he, at least, while he hears that you're still living, is happy at heart, and hopes from day to day that he'll see his dear son returning from the land of Troy whereas I am wholly ill-fated. Of the best sons I sired in the broad land of Troy, not one, I tell you, is left. Fifty I had when the Achaean sons first came. Nineteen were born to me from one single womb. The rest other women bore in my halls. But most of these, though many, had their limbs unstrung by impetuous Ares, The one true son I had left me to guard the city and its people, you slew untimely as he fought in defense of his country. Hector, it's for his sake I've come. Now, to the Argives' ships, to recover him from you. Bring with me ransom past counting. Revere the gods, Achilles. And to me, show pity, remembering your own father. But I'm the more pitiable, for I've borne what no other mortal on earth has yet endured. I've brought to my lips the hand of the man who killed my son.
2: Andrew, Wes, <laughs> Andrew, you gotta stop, man. Wes, this is a How can this you thing you're reading is a powerful passage. I'm a father, you're a father, we have fathers. This is a powerful passage. This stirs in our hearts a passion for grieving, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. For our own fathers. Absolutely. That's why the next lines are so amazing. So saying, he stirred in Achilles the urge to weep for his father. He took the old man by the hand, gently Mm. pushed him away. Both had their memories. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Yeah. I'm a son. Yeah. I've lost my father. Yeah. We're both fathers. We have and sons. There, there's
2: our sons will likely lose their fathers. Yeah, this is don't go Hamlet a, on me. This is a, <laughs> this is a universally um, uh, uh, I don't know if I want to say tragic. This is a universally universally applicable passage, and it it gets
1: at the sadness of life. Mm-hmm.
2: And appropriately, it's in the last book of the Iliad. Hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's book twenty-four. It's
2: one of the last things that's left our memories. Yeah, and, there, and the speech that comes after this is also very powerful and kind of elaborates the the um, the, dis, the, the deep despair and the you know the tragedy at the heart of the universe. That kind of in this in this worldview.
1: Do you want to read some of it?
2: Yeah. So this is <clears throat> Achilles. Sitting in this tent, King Priam of Troy comes in person with no bodyguard to the camp of, of the enemy who killed his his son. And, he, and, and this king, this king of Troy, uh, uh, kneels at the feet of his enemy uh, and makes this speech that you just read. And the two weep together. The sound of their mourning moves in the house. And then when they're done weeping, Achilles... <coughs> Uh, Rises from his chair, takes the old man by the hand, sets him on his feet, in pity for the gray head and the gray beard, uh, and makes uh, makes this speech. Ah, unlucky, surely you have had much evil to endure in your spirit. How could you dare to come alone to the ships of the Achaeans and before my eyes, when I am one who have killed in such numbers such brave sons of yours? The heart in you is iron." Come then and sit down upon this chair, and you and I will even let our sorrows lie still in the heart for all our grieving. There is not any advantage to be won from grim lamentation. Such is the way the gods spun life for unfortunate mortals, that we live in unhappiness, but the gods themselves have no sorrows. There are two urns that stand on the door sill of Zeus. They are unlike for the gifts they bestow, an urn of evils, an urn of blessings. If Zeus, who delights in thunder, mingles these and bestows them on man, he shifts and moves now in evil, now again in good fortune. But when Zeus borrows from the urn of sorrows, he makes a failure of man, and the evil hunger drives him over the shining earth, and he wanders, respected neither of gods nor mortals. And then he goes on with some more mythological stories, but this is a powerful passage, uh, and this is part of that deep despair and tragedy at the heart of this, of the. Uh, this part of the heart, of, not all, part of the heart of the worldview here in Homer. Now, the gods really don't want us to be too happy. Zeus has these two urns, one with good and one evil, and he sometimes sticks a hand in each and grabs a handful and scatters it on us, and we get mixed blessing and misery. Um, and sometimes he plunges his hand just into the, ver- the urn of evil and scatters that on us, and we move in tragedy and despair, blackness. He never... According to Achilles here, we never see Zeus reaching his hand just into the urn of good. The gods are jealous of our happiness. They don't want us to be too happy because that's the province of the gods. This is not a pleasant, this is not an optimistic worldview. <laughs> and in fact, <laughs> in, in fact, when he concludes the speech, uh, he says... But now the Iranian gods brought on us an affliction upon you forever uh, brought us an affliction upon you. Forever there is fighting about your city and men killed. But bear up. This is Achilles' conclusion to this particular speech. But bear up, nor mourn endlessly in your heart. Why? Because there's hope for the future? No. For there is not anything to be gained from grief for your son. You will never bring him back. Sooner you must go through yet another sorrow. (laughs) So... Achilles' conclusion is: since life is this way, this black, bleak, despairing—you know—we'll never, we'll never see uh, real happiness. It's at the hope, at the best, it's happiness mixed with misery. So, since that's the life the gods have spun for us, let's get up and keep going.
1: That is so fascinating. I- I'm going to say something that we can't talk about because of time. But what you just made—you just give me a question that um, I want to explore at some point. And it came out in my head the first way it it said to me, so then does Christianity make babies of us? And then, and then I thought, is that, (laughs) is that at the root? Okay. So is that why, like you look at counseling and psychology in our culture, okay, that's not going to be considered good therapy. (laughs) In our day and
2: age. Right? It's an interesting prospect. You but and I can not? open a counseling office and use this as our. Yeah, campaign. right. <laughs> you what, know, we call it the Achillean method. Miserable, miserable, you just get out there and keep going. That'll be 65 bucks, please.
1: See, but why not? <laughs> right, I mean, it's Lucy, right? Lucy Van Pelt. But, but why? Seriously, a serious question. If we were counselors or therapists in ancient Greece, we would say that to people. And they would pay us for doing so, but we don't in our day and age. And and it seems to me that the transition that took place is that under Christianity we stopped, as Western people, is uh, to some degree Eastern people, we stopped believing that life is just something to endure. And. We, we came to believe in a, in a state of blessedness, and that changes things.
2: Yeah, well, there, I think there's—actually, there, I think—I I agree, but I think there's a, a reason for that, too, uh, and it's in Homer, uh, because this isn't the only place in Homer where a kind of a worldview is expressed. Another one is in, in this third section of the whole book, 16 through 24. In book 18, there's a the famous Shield of Achilles episode. And uh, Achilles has lost his shield because because at the end of Book 16, there's the tragedy with Patroclus. And so on the shield of Achilles, which is made for him by Hephaestus, the smith god, are depicted uh, the sun, moon, and stars, the river, ocean, the earth, and the sky, a city at war, a city at peace, uh, the seasons, and uh, and, and, and plowing, and, 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 uh, and, and reaping, and planting, and vineyard harvesting, and people dancing, and there's a wedding, and there's a war, and there's a murder trial. There's all these aspects of life. Um, Unlike the shield in the famous Roman epic, the Aeneid, uh, 800 years later, there's no vision of the future on Achilles' shield, it's all life in the present, Uh, and it's delightful. It's these youths dancing happily on the, on the threshing floor after the harvest is over or in the vineyard under a full moon. There's people living their lives here and there. And Homer de- depicts it in such a way that it seems to me, I might be wrong, but it seems to me that he's asking us to take delight in the world around us in the same way that all these little vignettes, the epic similes, ask us to delight in the world. A woman staining a cheekpiece, a carpenter falling a tree in the forest, so on the one hand there's this tragic vision in Achilles' speech life is miserably miserable so get up and do it but on the other hand this this impulse that can't be explained on their terms but an impulse to still uh, love the world we live in so the conclusion the conclusion of Achilles' speech doesn't seem to be you know to put a gun to your head like a modern nihilist but there's still there's there's still um, but there's still an impulse to 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 uh, love what you see around you, the beauty of nature and the beauty of relationships and so on. But for the, for the ancient Greeks, they could never explain why you would love that if the world is the way it is in Achilles' speech. And the Christians, when they come along, could explain it. And they say, yes, both are true. There's futility, there's wretchedness, there's vile misery. But there's also, uh, there's also uh, this impulse in our hearts to love the world around us and to cling to life. And only this message of the, of the incarnate God... You know, can 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 explain why we have all this. So, as the early church fathers, you know, uh, their attitude was: the gospel comes to fulfill what the early Greeks were thinking and feeling after, not to destroy it and sweep it away, but to fulfill it and say, "You were right to long for it, but here's the reason. Here's the here's what you're really long, longing for: the Logos Himself, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, who is incarnated in the Virgin Mary." So, uh, I I think uh, that you could see. And again, you know, I this is just me, but you could see this tragic vision in Book in Book Twenty Four, that you can see uh, a, a pleasanter vision in the in the in the Epic Similes, and especially in the Shield of Achilles. And these two things, the Greeks both held to, but uh, I don't know um, I don't know that they ever could have explained why they would hold both of them, why they would still have a love for life. Only the Christians could come along and say, uh, you know, I think I think I have an answer for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's something. That, that maybe they would say it's in the last episode we talked about IS who fights like a warrior because that's what a warrior yeah. does, and maybe yeah. they would say we rejoice in this life because that's what we do, right? It's our nature. But it yeah. is, it is, it is nice to have. It's nice to have. It, it's settling and and securing to have a, 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 a theological metaphysical whatever a a a deep explanation for why even though life is so full of death and despair we can still look at the tree and delight in it we can still look at the human customs and say those are amazing those are beautiful those are enjoyable and we should participate in them we should have communities that do those sorts of things
2: yeah you know um and I'm afraid I'm getting us off track. So cut me off when you need to, but
1: we'll just um, have to delete it all
2: <laughs> in the Odyssey. Uh, Odysseus encounters Achilles in Hades and Achilles unsays everything he says here in the Iliad. It's better. He says to be a slave uh, behind the plow of a rich man in the land of the living than to be a King down here in the, in the land of the dead. Mm. Um, you know, mm. so, uh, so for 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 him you know it it's, it wouldn't be just enough to do what I says this is what we do this is where this is our glory do what we do that we have to die there there would have to be you know some some inkling of of of, of hope and not just an intellectual explanation for their desire for for right. love and beauty, but there'd have to be some hope that they would be that, that, that there would be a restoration you know so the Jews have that hope. Job says, "I know my redeemer liveth, and I'll see him within the flesh with these eyes at the last day." Um, and even some of the Greeks, I think, had a kind of a, a glimmering of the idea of resurrection. But if you don't have that, then if you don't have, uh, um, um, you know, the, the sanctification of the, of the matter of the world by a God who takes on matter, then how, how do you explain this? I mean, it's, it's, it might be for many people enough just to love it, not to explain it, but to know why different stories the christians have something to offer that none of the greek philosophers had although they're all feeling toward it but i've digressed i'm afraid i've digressed
1: (laughs) it's it is more beautiful if you can bring in the intellect and, and more than just the the deep deep feeling it's more beautiful if you can let the mind enjoy it too if i can put it that way
2: Yeah. Although we well, Wes, we we, we, no, just add one thing to that last comment. We wouldn't want to suggest, by having said that, that the Christian message is just bringing the intellect on top of the pagan heart, because I think the Christian message is is as as deep as the heart goes as well. So, thank you,
1: thank you. I agree with that completely.
2: But but yes, I certainly understood your point. Well,
1: we're in section three, and. I suggested in the previous podcast episode that section three, well, it's been called the most perfect sustained poetry ever written, and we can't just read it. And we've only got fifteen minutes left to talk about it. So, Wes, what do we? We can do this. You did drop. We can a hint. do this. We can. I think you dropped a hint about book eighteen. So I'm gonna and the shield. So I'm gonna leave that for a second, but. We've been been saying that each section is somewhat chiastic. We've been saying that each section begins with Achilles initiating some action and ends with Mm -hmm. Zeus being aroused to action. So we've just talked about book 24 where Achilles and Priam are together. If we're right, then there's the assumption that Zeus did something to bring bring Achilles and Priam together in book 24. But let's go back to 16 before we go there and say – What happens to get Achilles aroused to action in book sixteen? What's what's the we've also said that each book has a problem, at least we've hypothesized based on Bruce Haydn's work, that each book has a problem and a decision, followed by an action, followed by an aftermath. So let me ask the question for book sixteen. What's the problem?
2: Well, the problem in Book 16, at least the, the, the problem in the beginning of Book 16, is that the situation is, um, is as dire as can be, as we talked about in the last episode. At the end of 15, we have Ias astride the Greek ships, trying to fend off the Trojans who are right around the Greek ships, threatening to burn them and destroy the Achaean army entirely. So at the beginning of Book 16, that's the situation. And there, at the beginning of Book 16, for the first time since the end of Book 11, we see Patroclus. Um, And so, you know, solutions in in view. But the problem is the direness of the of the situation. There's an entirely different problem at the end of book 16. But I think you're talking about the beginning, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Correct. Correct. Because in in each case, I didn't mention this earlier, but more or less in each case. Well, I, I don't know if it's in every case, but frequently the decision that leads to an action leads to an action that leads to a further problem. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call it the law of continually on extent unintended consequences, yeah. but, but you, we, we see, and certainly we're going to see that explode in book 16, where the ultimate unintended consequence happens. So at, at the beginning of 16, the problem, as you said, is that the Greeks are in deep, deep yeah. trouble. And so uh, there's, there's a, there's a double decision that, that gets discussed and made, but although one of them is a little subtle, um, but what what is the what is the decision made? Okay, the problem
2: is we're in trouble. Who talks about it? Uh, Patroclus. He's the one who tells at the beginning of Book sixteen. He's the one who who shows up and tells Achilles what the problem is. Okay, uh, and Achilles is actually the problem, <laughs> <laughs> but Patroclus is the one who describes it in his it's from from his mouth uh, that we that we uh, that Achilles and we uh, hear what the difficulty is. Is that what right. you were? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so
1: what I'm co- taking from Haydn and looking for myself is the fact that there seems to be continually this a discussion takes place, right? The, Homer is uh-huh. so much about words. and um, And so what we have here is Achilles and Patroclus have a discussion from which a decision follows. And that decision is what?
2: is to send patroclus out in achilles's armor which is the idea Bingo. that is suggested to patroclus by nestor back in book 11 yeah so to send patroclus out wearing achilles's armor pretending to be him which will terrify the trojans perhaps perhaps drive him back momentarily and give the greeks some some uh some breathing space
1: it's worth mentioning that the trojans would not know that it's patroclus wearing achilles armor they would have thought it was achilles
2: yeah yeah exactly now uh, here here's a um, I, I know we can't afford the time to get into these much, but, uh, but Achilles is going to uh, is going to let Patroclus do this, wear his armor and drive them away temporarily to give them some breathing space. But Achilles doesn't say, "And then I'll come back into the battle." So we might ask, "What does he think will happen next?" Well, I don't know. That's just a, a thought that was raised for me. Clearly, that. Um, That's a a moot point because of what does happen. But yeah, Patroclus will lead uh, not just wear his armor, but lead his twenty five hundred man army of Myrmidons out in battle, who are you know fresh and rested and spoiling for a fight because they haven't been fighting either. Achilles withdrew not only himself but all two thousand five hundred men in his army.
1: The cavalry comes over the hill.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: There's a there's a parallel problem decision a parallel decision made because as soon as patroclus is sent into battle achilles now has a problem and so he talks to zeus about it what's that
2: mm-hmm. well yeah achilles doesn't want patroclus to die obviously they're best friends they're, they, they have like a dave and jonathan relationship it's a uh, you know their dearest friends so he pray. so achilles prays to zeus um you know let him drive the trojans away but let him come back safe from the battle don't let him die
1: what does Zeus decide?
2: <laughs> Zeus says no. Achilles doesn't know that, but Zeus says no.
1: Notice notice what, what Achilles has done. He's now made two mega requests to Zeus. One, save my honor. Two, keep Patroclus alive. What he's about to find out yeah. is that his two requests aren't compatible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the book, the, the the text says, Homer says the father, Zeus, granted him one prayer and denied him the other. That Patroclus should beat back the fighting vessels, fighting assaults on the vessels he allowed, but refused to let him come back safe out of the fighting.
1: Yeah, and and then the way he does that in book 16 is that Patroclus does enter the battle. He does drive yeah. Hector and the Trojans back But then when he's supposed to, and then he kills Sarpedon, which is huge because Sarpedon is Zeus's son. Mm -hmm. And and that's a sort of a sacrifice Zeus is making himself, which he's going to use when he talks to Hera. Um, but, But then he's supposed to stop, as you indicated, and he keeps on going. And it's in that toward the end of book 16, where Patroclus keeps on going, Apollo steps in. And Patroclus is killed really by Apollo. You could you could sort yeah. of credit Hector with it. Hector just takes his armor, but, but Apollo is the one who kills him. Now, I'm going to make an aside here just to create controversy. I think that this move by Hector, everybody loves Hector because of book six. Mm-hmm. I think in book 16, what we see is... Hector has been in decline ever since book six. He's been increasingly irreverent toward his fellow troops and toward the gods. And here he he's about to hit bottom. Bottom is when he actually turns and runs from Achilles. But to my mind, Hector is a character who we watched his 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 character arc, as they say, is a as an arc of decline from beginning And so those of you who love Hector, forgive me, but that
2: was uh, was a dangerous thing for you to say, Andrew, because I completely disagree and I would like evidence. (laughs) Um, I I don't think he's in decline at all. I think he's consistent with his character. Um, The running thing you have a case for, he breaks there. But I don't think what happens at the end of book 16 is evidence of anything negative at all in Hector.
1: Well, we can talk about this in our next session when we when we try to summarize, Good. but and that would be a big arc to the whole book. But I'll just say this much: when he debates with mm-hmm. other people, early on he does it respectfully, and increasingly in his debates with other people, he's disrespectful of the other people and irreverent toward the gods.
2: Yeah, uh, I, again, I disagree. But you, 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 this was brought brought to your mind by what he does here at the end of book sixteen. What do you think at the end of book sixteen indicates as something? Um, uh, negative about Hector.
1: Well, we'll get lost in this, but I, I just don't think he did anything impressive. He, he, Apollo kills Patroclus. Hector takes more glory than he merits in this case. When he uh, takes okay the I'll, I'll I'll, I'll armor. try
2: to give a brief d- defense of my position uh, what what Hector's doing he doesn't he doesn't get the total glory for Achilles that's true but uh, in def- in defense of, of, uh, of Hector here remember what was happening just, literally just a moment before before Apollo stopped Hector Hector had, had driven the Trojans not out, of, not only out of the camp, but clear across, across the plain and right up to the walls. In fact, he's driving the soldiers up the walls, Homer says. And the text tells us that if pa- Paula hadn't stop him, uh, stopped him, Patroclus would have taken the city right there. So imagine what was in Hector's mind in that last moment. Imagine the terror and the despair and the horror as he thinks about his wife and his children, his family, and he sees that Patroclus is about to take the city. It's almost all over. And suddenly, Unaccountably something happens, because of course we can't see Apollo acting. Patroclus stops stunned like he's having an epileptic fit or something, and then his armor unaccountably falls off, uh, and then Euphorbus stabs in the back, and this is the opportunity for Hector to run up and stab him in the belly. And suddenly everything's saved. But just a moment before he thought everything was lost. The contrast would have been devastating emotionally. Um, it's it's hard for me to see how a man could have done anything else than than Hector, gasping, terrified, confused, seeing the enemy lying at his feet that a moment before was about to kill his wife and children and family and take the city. Um, I think I think uh, um, I, I think there's nothing uh, to be leveled against Hector here.
1: You're just constantly trying to humiliate. <laughs> put me down at one.
2: Just, just, kidding. I'm just, just kidding. reading Homer, just You're, reading the text. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Your case is strong. In In the next episode, we'll go to the, to the, to the other element of my case, which is the, the how he conducts himself in the, okay. in the debate. So I, I will, I will, I will surrender on this point and run from you. But
2: let's uh, do you want to continue um, on the trajectory of this last section here? Uh,
1: well, I think we've got about four minutes left okay. and we have 17 to 23 to cover. <laughs> Let's let's take about a minute to talk about book 24, where Zeus rises to action again. And then you can summarize 17 to 23. (laughs) (laughs) All
2: right. Go ahead.
1: Well, in book 24, um, why, why, why does Zeus get called upon? What, what is, what leads him to act again? Well, let, let me put it. Let me go back to the earlier question. What's the problem in Book Twenty Four?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, there's still there's still there's imbalance in the cosmos and the rightness of things, right? There's a council. Of the, the answer to the question is there's a council of the gods that directs Zeus uh, to direct Hermes um, to um, uh, uh, you know to um, uh, to help to help Prime get his get the body of Hector back. Um, the, 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 the problem is that um, the problem is still Achilles, uh, really. Uh, Achilles is still, uh, his his anger is unresolved. He's killed Hector, which he wanted to do, uh, but that's not enough. He's still angry. You know, at this point, what would possibly resolve the problem of the anger in Achilles' heart?
1: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, the problem, if if I can embody it, it's that he's abusing Hector's body. <laughs> Having killed him, he's abusing his body.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's dragging, and so dragging the body the, right behind the his mis- chariot. Yeah,
1: and that leads to a council in the gods, where Apollo and 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 Athena and Aphrodite are talking about this, and they're saying, you know, we have to stop this. And and what does what's the decision the gods make together?
2: Yeah, well, they're going to send us, so uh, uh, Zeus is going to have uh, uh, Priam. They're going to send Priam to recover the body of Hector, um, guarded by guarded by Hermes. Um, but uh, um, that's their that's their decision, and of course. The assumption is that something about what will happen, or what will result from that, the assumption is that, that is that somehow something will change Achilles, because if he's this angry, if he's dragging the body of the, the the corpse of Hector around, you know, tied to the chariot, um, def, you know, despoiling the body and ripping it apart. If he's this angry, but why on earth would he let Priam take the body back? Right, right, huh? What, what would soften his heart at this point? Yeah.
1: Well, I, I guess if we had time, we could really explore that question. What would soften his heart? I suppose we can (laughs) leave it to our readers to, to read and find out what, okay. So, so he, he agreed, or Zeus arranges for Priam to go and get the body of Hector, his son.
2: And that's
1: the, that's the decision you could say. He decides that, 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 that he should give his body back and then makes arrangements. The action then, how how is that decision that he should get the body back enacted?
2: Well, I mean, he does it. He 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 prepares a wagon. His wife says no, but he's going to do it anyway. He drives the wagon across the plain, and uh, um, Hermes accompanies him and makes sure that nobody stops him. And he slips past the guards, gets into the very, you know, into the very camp of Achilles himself, and then goes makes the appeal to Achilles. Um, that we were talking about earlier, he, he has that famous speech where he says, "I put my lips to the hands of the man who killed my children," yeah. and then they both break down and weep.
1: So powerful, so yeah, powerful, yeah,
2: tremendous, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and of course, that's what that's what uh, leads up to the very the very end of Book Twenty Four. Achilles agrees to let them bury the body of Hector, give them some space to for the funeral.
1: Would you say then that Priam is more successful than than the uh, embassy was in Book Nine when? when the three men went to talk to Achilles to keep him in the battle?
2: Yeah, yeah, I would. I, um, of course, he has a very different intention, but um, um, but what he does, um, I, w- I would argue that what he does brings about what their, what their embassy following the normal protocols and normal, normal cultural expectations could not do. Uh, Priam's actions, which are in complete defiance of cultural expectations, Wow! And do accomplish it.
1: Wow, that's that's so good a point. And then what happens after Priam gets the body?
2: Yeah, well, he takes he takes the body back to the city, and the the, the, the entire Iliad ends with um, the funeral rites and so on for for, um, uh, for for Hector, and Achilles has promised to give them twelve days of, of peace while they. Well, they carry it on, so the, the 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 entire story ends with the with the funeral and the burial of Hector. And in fact, uh, the very last line refers to him. There's nothing more about uh, Achilles after the last couple of pages. The end of the story is all about Hector, which is interesting and kind of problematic.
1: Hmm. hmm. Yeah.
2: The last line is such was the burial of Hector, breaker of horses, and we might expect. But I think there's obviously you know having opinions like you do. I think there's answers to, but we might expect that the last line would be something like, and so was the wrath of Achilles softened, you know, and the consequences, you know, there'd be something about Achilles. That would be nice and tidy, but Homer doesn't do that. Yeah. He's, he's, he's brilliant at that, isn't he? Where he'll
1: take a form and, and adjust it. He'll set an expectation and, 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 and surprise it just a little yeah. bit. Yeah. The way a great composer does.
2: Yeah leave us, uh, uh, cause us a little bit of a lurch, like you know, that last step that you think is there and isn't, or one extra step that, you know, that there's that dissonance and then the resolution, but the, but they never want it to be expected. They want it to be something that catches us, comes from a different angle, just out of the periphery, not from straight on.
1: My my theory is that, that Homer is always trying to get us to look beyond the text, beyond the, the epic, so that so that there's there's a way that it echoes into our lives and you know what you have told me that you need to go around now and we're therefore painfully out of time i feel like
2: that is tragic
1: the disappointment priam must have felt um, <laughs> But we have, we have one more episode this season. Mm-hmm. In that episode, I'm going to propose to you that we, we do a quick summary of how we got from book 16 to book 24. And then we'll talk about what Homer was doing, what we take from it, what we learn from it, see if there's anything more. Because here, here's, I'll just drop this as a hint. Throughout the Iliad, people tell stories in these constant debates that, that are going on right? They never just use a rational argument. They're always telling stories. I want to suggest that all of those stories are, are meant to help people think through their particular situations by means of analogy. And what Homer's doing is combining all of these stories into a big story, which is an analogy for all of life. So that what he wants us to do with it is to, to weave our own lives into a more I'll just say artistic fabric and he's giving us the guidance to do so that's that's going to be a hypothesis I offer for what he's up to
2: interesting okay I'm up for listening to that
1: (laughs) all right and we'll pick it up then in our in our next episode and and you need to go so Wes let me just say one last thing to you Mm mm-hmm May the Lord be with you. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom.
2: Thank you, Andrew. And I wish the same for you.
1: We'll talk again soon.